start this. So this is a big question. If you've been following along, we've been doing uh, other big questions. And this is in our series called 20 Questions. And we're looking at elementary theological ideas. All right, so things that a lot of us probably have studied our whole lives. And I think what I found out in going through this is a lot of us have maybe just sort of like brushed by. Um, I always talk about our you know, theological beliefs or Christianity being like a home. And that home has been has had its foundation rather uh, laid by someone else. Most of the time our parents, sometimes our grandparents, and sometimes people even generations before that. And just like with a house, and we have a builder right here, or a contractor, whatever you want to call yourself. What, contractor? Sure. Yeah, okay. Um, if you don't go in every, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years, I'm not a builder. I'm showing, I'm showing that I'm definitely not what you do. I'm doing great, right? Um, if you don't go in and inspect the foundation, it's possible uh, that you could have termites or that something could have messed it up or perhaps I know you were building y'all's house and you found out that the foundation it needed some aeration or something right and so uh, it's really important to inspect your foundation certainly if it was laid by someone else and they could have told you like oh, it'll be fine you could build on it but unless you inspect it you'll find there might be something wrong um, so I think as it pertains to theology we have to go back and inspect these things certainly if we've never even looked at them in the first place so I think this is why this is important um, I'm going to tell a quick story that sort of plays into that and it's about my daughter Libby. I feel like all my stories now have become kid related. Eric knows what I'm talking about, right? It's, I guess it's all we do. We, you read theological things and you raise your kids and I straighten teeth. Um, but uh, she's been playing piano and so she's done lessons, I think like nine lessons a couple years ago. She's done six this summer. She's also doing vocal and uh, we were sitting down together and, and I've honestly not like paid a lot. Of, I've not inspected her piano playing to this point. Um, but I sat down with her. I was really impressed. We were doing like Do, Re, Mi, and she was able to do that vocally, and I was playing it on the piano, and she was following along. I was like, she's really gotten pretty good. And I played a little bit of piano in college, took like a year of lessons. Probably the worst student ever. I, I gave like a performance, and it was so bad. Like, it, I just knew that they were just watching, like, can't wait till this is over with. They had to judge the performance. Just not very good. I tried. I, I gave them all. Um, but, so I was with uh, uh, Libby, and I was trying to show her the difference in major and minor chords. So major chords mostly use the white keys. Minor chords will start to throw in some black keys, typically. And major sounds happy, minor sounds sad. So I was just trying to really basic you know, musical idea. And she was kind of focusing on stuff, as she is apt to do. She's an over-focuser. And she was like, so what are the black keys for? I was like, oh my goodness, really? So I, I realized in that moment, Libby, as good as she's been, she's got a long way to go. So she didn't even know what the black keys did. So if you look at a piano, there's 88 keys. I think it's what, 52 are white, 36 are black. And so what I realized is that in that moment is, is that Libby, obviously she's elementary as it pertains to piano, she's got a long way to go. She didn't even really know what the black keys were for. Um, and I think it's true of Christianity that we have this enormous keyboard, as it were, all these different keys, and we like to play the favorites. Okay, we like to talk about the things that we know that are comfortable. We get into the minor keys, okay, we get into the black keys. Sometimes we don't like that, sometimes it's a little uncomfortable. I guess I would say that a question of who is Christ is pretty much, it's a white key question, okay? We talk about Jesus a lot, okay? I think maybe there are some things in this, though, that, you know, maybe are a little bit minor and maybe we don't like to talk about. So we're going to talk about the dual nature of Christ. Uh, there's Anna with our new baby. There we go. Exactly. Uh, we had another one, people. Um, <laughs> but I think it's also possible that some of these white key issues we don't like to talk about either. So anyway, forgive the long and drawn out analogy, Dudley. I'm sorry. Um, all right. So we're going to get into that. So the last two weeks, what have we talked about? Well, Chris talked about what is man. David talked about what is sin. And I think in a question of what is man, what Chris established was 
that all of us, no matter what we've done, how we classify ourselves, whatever, we're all made in the image of God. We, we cannot do anything to undo that. We'll always be made in the image of God. And I think because of that, the immediate takeaway is, is that we should value humanity uh, regardless, okay? Uh, regardless of what someone has done, or where they've been, uh, we should value humanity. At all levels of life, we should value humanity. Now, unfortunately, that's not where the story ends, okay? Because also, what David talked about is what is sin? And the other truth, made in the image of God, we also all sin. We also have a sin nature. And so those the two things are competing with one another. So the part of us that is of the snake, the part of us that is of God, okay? Um, and I thought David did a great job with his. And that sin, it separates us from a holy and just God. So this sets up this tension that we'll refer to a couple times today, this tension between a holy God that has to punish sin because he can't be in the presence of sin, and then also between sinful man, between us, okay? So that's the tension. And so hopefully answering today's question will help resolve this tension. Before we get into that, I want to look at uh, the history. I always love history, so I always like to look at well, where did the word Christ come from, and, and we'll do a little bit on prophecies in the Old Testament. There'll be a lot of Bible verses today, because there's a lot. I'm not going to like have us open up and go to that, but if you want to refer to it as I bring it up, feel free to. I was also going to come in and write out a bunch of stuff on the board, but again, computer issues. It's okay. Um, all right, so the word Christ, it comes from Christos, or Christos, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. So anytime you hear the word Messiah and you hear the word Christ, they can be used interchangeably. It's just a difference in language. Um, and Messiah, does anyone know what Messiah means? Who answered that? So unfair. Eric answered. Yeah. He gave space. He was waiting. He's like the kid. Teacher's pet. Um, yes, the anointed one or the chosen one. So Christ means the same thing effectively. Um, I did teach a class. We were talking, I guess it was... Uh, was it called God and the Prophets? Or trying to look at how the Old Testament and the New Testament are very much uh, intermarried. And, and uh, the Old Testament, it's not like it was written in isolation in the sense that, well, these are the stories, and now we got the New Testament, and they're separate, kind of like we separate them. It's all one continuous story that leads to Christ. Um, we, we looked at the prophecies of the Messiah, and conservatively, there are about 100 predictions in the Old Testament about this future Messiah that was to come. So 100 different uh, predictions. So these are things that are written hundreds of years before. And so over about a thousand year period by dozens of different authors, all these predictions that Jesus came and he fulfilled. So I think just letting that, you know, kind of focus on that for just a second, that's pretty amazing. So over a thousand years, hundred predictions, Jesus comes, he fulfills them all. I think that in and of itself is, is pretty incredible. Um, and so what we learn mainly about these prophecies is that there is a coming Messiah or Christ. He's gonna come from the family of Abraham and the tribe of Judah in the line of King David and he's going to establish an eternal kingdom and redeem God's people. All right, so Abraham, Judah, David, he's going to come. He's going to institute this new kingdom. Okay, so we, we know the end of this story. So, yeah, we're like, sure, he did that. I know that. Those, again, we're, we're playing the white keys now. We're in the major chords here. Um, I think to focus in, though, I, my favorite of all the prophecies is Isaiah 53. If you want to turn there, this would be a good time to turn there. So Isaiah 53, this is the section of Scripture known as the Suffering Servant. And this was written 700 years before the birth of Christ. All right, so what Isaiah 53 is doing is it's telling the breathtaking uh, story in great detail of Jesus, before we knew it was Jesus at the time, but a suffering servant who took uh, on the punishment that others deserved, and as a result of his wounds, we are healed. So I'm going to read this, and I may stop on a couple little sections that really 
uh, cry, cry out for our understanding of Jesus and the story of Jesus. But uh, just, again, keep in mind this was seven years, uh, 700 years before the birth of Christ. You know, I get excited when I'm watching a show and it's like season two, there's something that happens, you're a little confused, and then season four, it's like, you know, it was, it was obvious it was foreshadowing and then they kind of fulfill that idea. Or like in the Avengers movies, we've got, you know, 10, 11 years of movies and we're impressed when they've like set something up. We're like, that's amazing. This is 700 years. So it's, uh, I think, certainly more amazing. All right, so he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities, our sicknesses, and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced, again we know he's pierced in the side, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, so we all sin. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and his sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. This is why Jesus was silent among uh, Pilate and uh, uh, all the others. By oppression and judgment, he, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? So again, he was born miraculously. For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. He was crucified next to robbers. And with the rich in his death, he was buried in Joseph's grave. Though he had done no violence, nor was uh, any deceit in his mouth, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Okay, so in this section of scripture, 700 years before the birth of Christ, we have basically everything I'm going to talk about today. Okay, so I think... Uh, Obviously incredible. Um, just love that section of scripture. So Isaiah 53. Uh, so I think when you read this, or at least when I read it, you sort of realize that Jesus was inevitable. You know, if this scripture, if we accept that it was inspired by God, God knew a long time before we did that this was going to happen. And so I think there's a sort of like eerie, again, like a feeling. It's like when, when something happens in a movie or in a book or something, you're like, ah, that makes sense of it. It's sort of like in a, in a heist film where they go back and they show like Ocean's Eleven or something. They show like how it was all set up and why people were doing what they were doing. You're like, ah, that makes sense. There's that, you know, that couple minute scene that's, that it reveals everything. And this is really what this is. And so uh, I, I think I love the way that this summarizes things. I'm going to try and show this. I had it downloaded. But again, we'll see um, if YouTube works. And if it stops working, we're just going to be okay with it, okay? Uh, so let's try this. This is a Bible Project video that does a really good job of summarizing this. We'll see what happens. There's this crazy story at the beginning of the Bible. We have Adam and Eve, and they're in the garden. Everything in this garden is great. It's exactly what it should be, except there's this one tree that they're told by God not to eat from because it's dangerous and it will kill so that's it. Uh, avoid this fruit tree and we're fine. Right. It seems pretty simple. But in this garden, there's a snake. And it starts telling a different story. It says that if you eat of this tree, it's not going to kill you. In fact, it's going to make you become like God. And Adam and Eve, they believe the snake and they eat the fruit. And because of this, the goodness of the garden is tragically lost and evil and death enters into God's good world. Now... Why is there a talking snake in the garden? I mean, this thing is a problem. Yeah, it's very strange. And even more strange is the fact that the Bible doesn't say why or how this thing even got there. It just presents the snake as this creature who's in rebellion against God and that wants to get other people to doubt God's goodness and lead them on a path towards death. 
And so whatever this snake is, it's the source of evil that pervades our world and our lives, even still today. But there is some hope, because right here in the story, God makes this really interesting promise to Adam. That someone is going to come in the future, a son of Eve. And this guy's going to come, and he's going to crush the serpent's head and destroy evil at its source. However, during this battle, the serpent is going to bite this guy's heel. So it's like a mutual destruction. Yeah, it's this very strange but beautiful promise. And it's just left hanging there until the next key moment in the story, when God singles out this guy named Abraham and says that through his family, goodness and blessing is going to be restored back to all of the nations of the world. And as we follow this family, we get to one of Abraham's great-grandsons, this guy named Judah. And he receives this promise that a king is going to come from his line, and that the whole world's going to follow this king, and he's going to bring peace and harmony, and there'll be lots of food and wine and milk and vineyards, and it's going to be awesome. The first king that we meet from the line of Judah is a guy named King David. And he's a hero. Maybe he is the snake crusher. But it turns out that David is infected with the same evil as the rest of humanity. He never crushes the snake, just the opposite. However, God makes a promise to David that this king is going to eventually come from his line. But as you go on in the story, one by one, each generation of his sons, they're just total chumps. They give in to the snake, they choose evil, they go after money and sex and power and following other gods. Things get so bad that they run the nation of Israel right into the ground, and the big bad empire of Babylon just takes them out. And so now there are no more kings to even fulfill this promise. So it seems like the whole plan is lost. But during these dark days, there's this crazy group of guys called prophets, and they just kept talking about this coming king and reminding us of the promise that he'll come, he'll defeat evil, he'll restore the garden. Now, one specific prophet, Isaiah, he tells us more about why this king is bitten. Isaiah says that the promised king receives this wound because of humanity's evil, and that it kills him. But then all of a sudden he comes back, and Isaiah says it's because he suffered this wound that he can now become a source of healing to other people. But the Old Testament ends, and the snake-crushing king that everyone's been talking about never shows up. And this is why, when the New Testament begins, it introduces us to Jesus of Nazareth, not as some random guy, but as someone who comes to fulfill these specific ancient promises. You know, we learn that he's from the line of David, Judah, and Abraham. And he goes around Israel announcing that the goodness of God's kingdom is here, now. And he begins confronting the effects of evil on people by healing them, by forgiving them of their sins and evil. Many people are now believing that this is, in fact, the promised king. So Jesus began telling his closest followers that he was going to become king and bring peace by taking the full effect of humanity's evil into himself. The fatal snake bite wound. Exactly. And so it seems like the serpent wins. And this story actually would be a tragedy, except for what happens next. Jesus rises from the dead. And now Jesus has the power over evil and death for himself. And so the rest of the New Testament is then making this claim that Jesus' power over evil and death has now become available to us to begin confronting the effects of evil in our lives. But even still, death and evil are a real problem in our world all around us. And so the story of the Bible ends by describing this future day when Jesus comes back and he finishes the job. He 
destroys the snake once and for all, and he restores the goodness of the garden here on earth. All right. Hey, this is Tim. And this is John. We think what Sorry, Tim. Sorry, John. All right, so I'm super happy that worked. All right. They're still talking over there. We'll turn that off. We're a nonprofit, and we'd love to keep these videos free for. They're a nonprofit? Okay, so. Let's jump in and kind of uh, get into something else. So, again, I think that does a great job. I think anytime we show these videos, we always talk about how great of a job they do. Um, oh, and the podcast was still running, so there you go. It's just going great. It's going great. All right, so I want to get into this uh, question of the dual nature of Christ. And so this is probably one of the, uh, we're talking about black key sort of topics. This is something we don't really get into. This actually came up in another class. I think it was Clint Till that asked, you know, how could you know, Christ not know the time that God was going to come back and still be fully God and fully man? So I'm going to say on the front end, this is not like a super easy thing to understand. This is not something that you know, we all probably understand completely. This is not something that I understand completely, how it's possible that God or that Christ be fully God and fully man at the same time. Um, I think it is a mystery. I think it's a miracle. It's the only time it's happened. It's the only time it'll happen again. And yet it's also extremely central to our theology and, and to being Christian. So we need to understand it better. So let's talk about it. Um, it's also known as the hypostatic union, if you want to be like really intelligent and call it that. But I like to just think of it as the dual nature of Christ. Um, so let's look at the idea that Jesus was fully man. And so there's a few things I want to talk about. The first thing is that Jesus had um, a human mother. We know this. If we know anything about Christianity, we know this. We know Mary. We know that story. Matthew 1, 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, before they slept together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So obviously Jesus had a miraculous birth. Probably you've heard that story before. But his ordinary human birth confirms his humanity. So it was a miraculous conception but the birth was very human, so Jesus uh, was definitely of a human mom. Secondly, Jesus had a human body, which I think is interesting to think of. And so just as we have a human body, so did Jesus. Uh, we'll read this in different areas of Scripture. But as a child, he grew and became strong in Luke 2. And as he grew older, he increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man, Luke 2. He became wearied from a journey in John 4. After a fast, he was hungry, Matthew 4. And while on the cross, he said, I thirst, John 19. So we could say, in life, his body was exactly like ours. I think what's also interesting is that when he rose from the dead, he rose in a physical human body. Okay? Uh, and so this body was different. This was his glorified body or his new body. Okay, it's not like our body at this point. All right? It was no longer subject to weakness or disease or death, but it was still a physical body. So in Luke 24, we know this story, but see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. All right, so we don't have time to get into this today, but obviously he had a human body on earth. When he was raised in newness of life, he had a human body. The author also believes that Jesus has a human body in heaven, which is not something I think about. Is that something anyone else has thought about before? I'm getting a yes here. I'm getting a no here. You and me. I've never really thought about it. I think I just assume that Jesus is spirit in heaven. Um, and maybe he is. Maybe he is a human body in heaven. But uh, the belief of this author, and so that it, I did kind of a quick Google search, was I think a lot of people believe that theologically, that, that Christ is still in his uh, glorified body in heaven. So 
Anyway, maybe for another day we can discuss. All right, so the next thing is that Jesus had a human mind. All right, so, um, you know, you think about like our children again, and we watch them go through a learning process. Libby's learning the piano. Uh, they'll be heading into school. I'm sure a lot of yours are heading back into school either this week or next. And uh, Jesus went through that same process. So Luke 2 again, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So his mind developed. And so he learned, you know, we can presume things like how to talk, how to read, how to write, how to eat, um, you know, those, those sorts of things. Um, as a child that had no sin, he must have been just a great child, you know, he would have been great. So uh, anyway, uh, in his human nature, Jesus did not know the day he would return to earth. And so again, he had a human mind. He did not have a mind that understood everything or that knew the future, that knew the past exactly. Uh, so in Mark 13, it says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the son, but only the father. Um, and I think I'd love to spend more time on that question and how that's possible. But obviously there's a certain element of who Jesus was that obviously he didn't know originally. So there was, you know, at the temple as a 12-year-old where he sort of started to put this stuff together. And I think even increasingly so before he went out on his mission as a 30-year-old. Um, and I think that's super mysterious and interesting. But I think we just have to, you know... Uh, kind of form our decisions where the scripture speaks on this and it's clear that even though he was fully God he was also fully man and that there were certain things he didn't know at certain times um, and before his body was glorified he was you know again had, had a mind like a human just like us he also had a full range of emotions which I think is great uh, he marveled at the faith of the centurion in Matthew 8 he wept at the death of his friend Lazarus in John 11 he prayed to God with loud cries and tears in Hebrews 5 and before crucifixion, he said, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death, Matthew 26. And he also says in John 12, Now is my soul troubled. So he's dealing with these same sorts of emotions that we deal with. Of course, there is one big difference between us and Jesus, and that is that he was without sin. So that's the one way in which he was not like us as humans, okay? And so last week's lesson doesn't apply to Jesus, okay? Um, and I love this verse from Hebrews, and Hebrews is just full of awesome theology, uh, but Hebrews 4.15, For do we, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So it's not to say that Jesus was special, that he was God that came to earth and lived you know, with this full deity and the ability to reject sin because he had this superpower. No, he was a human. He thought like us. He was formed like us. He was weak in the ways that we're weak, except he chose not to sin. And so he was tempted just as we are. Um, and I think it's important, and this is why this is such an essential theological concept, is, is that if you weren't fully God or if you weren't fully human, then it really undoes the whole thing. Okay, so he needed to be fully human in both life and death. Okay, so he had to be human to live in our place. And he also had to be human to die in our place. Hebrews 2 says it like this. He had to be made like his brothers, us, in every respect, so that you might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So to stand in as our lamb, as our sacrifice, as our propitiation, the thing that atones us, that covers us, he had to be like us. And so if Jesus weren't fully human, again, it would have been pretty meaningless. It would, have, it would have not been what it needed to be. All right, so I want to ask this discussion question. So Jesus is fully man. Um, what are some ways that this is uh, an encouragement to you? Or maybe even a different way. So if it's, uh, surely it is an encouragement to you. But uh, maybe what are the interesting things about that that you uh, would conclude? So Jesus is fully man. What are some ways that this encourages you?
encouraging to talk to someone who's been there before. So I think of like different ways that um, people even in our class have, have suffered or dealt with um, you know, just the unfairness of life. When someone else in, the, in our class has dealt with the same thing and can encourage each other, that's, that's really special. So Jesus understands what it's like to be anxious, to be worried, to um, have things not go the way that he wanted, to pray for something and not work out. So that's really encouraging to have a, a Messiah, a Savior, the King of the world that knows what it's like to be me. Yeah. Anything else? Maybe another one, another two? felt the same ways or had those same desires in a sense and mm-hmm. was able to, to choose the, to choose the right thing but just to know that he Yeah, again, if it's like a you know, like it's like a video game where it's like an on, on rails shooter, so like everything's predetermined. It's sort of like, well, what's the big deal? You know, it's like he came, he was God, he did his thing. I mean, of course he did. You know, it's uh, like a cheat code, but he didn't. He didn't have. I mean, he was living just as us. <laughs> um, so I think the video game inspired. It was a video game for. Um, all right. Yes. I find that he's a success. What's that? He's a success. He's a success. Okay. The success is is that when when I'm going down a path and I know that sin's in front of me, I like somebody who's already gone down that road and and beat it. And sometimes I say to myself, he can. Maybe maybe I can. Sure. So that's... Yeah, it's great. I think you see this like in sports that until a record is broken, like the four-minute mile, let's say, like historically, no one could could break the four-minute mile. And then I, I don't have the exact stat, but you know, as soon as that was broken, it's like all of these people broke it. You know, it's like, oh, now everyone can run a four-minute mile. You know, so there there are things like that that when you think you're not able to do something, there's no use in trying. And so I think to know that someone lived and didn't sin uh, should be an inspiration to us, um, for sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think we learn a lot about what's appropriate or what's, you know, sometimes it seems like frowned upon, maybe historically, maybe like in a more sort of, I don't, don't want to say this the wrong way, maybe paternalistic or like overly masculine way of thinking about church, which is maybe the case in some areas that you don't cry about things, you're open about your emotions, you don't share things, you know, or even further that you don't spend time with sinners. Or th- you, know, you see that in life. Jesus was exactly the opposite of that. Um, so I think that's uh, there's beauty in that to, to learn from his example. Let me jump on. I, well, I'll give you one. I'll give you the floor. Ten seconds. I'm just uh, I, Go ahead. I think, too, just like the, the kind of like the barbarity of that, that if he wasn't human, and I think one of the things that probably 
for a lot of us that are just learning, like the way Christ died, the way he performed that sacrifice is such it's so gut-wrenching that it makes us really think about what our sin costs. Hmm. And if he wasn't a human person who suffered the same, like just that barbaric physical punishment that he went through, I don't know that we fully understand the cost of the sacrifice. Hmm. Yeah, that's great. So let's talk about that he's fully God. Thank you to everyone who shared. That was awesome. Um, so, a little different. All right, so Jesus is God. It's in the title. Um, you may remember this when Michael taught on the Trinity. We, we discussed this. We established that Jesus is fully God. He's a you know, full member of the Trinity. And that's in itself another you know, difficult theological issue. That's, that's a minor chord right there, um, but a really important one. Colossians 2.9, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's ESV. It's, sometimes ESV is very great and sometimes it's very like weird the way they say that but in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily it's a beautiful verse um, jesus is also lord so however you want to write this um, but jesus is contemporary so the people living around him his disciples um, they all referred to jesus as lord uh, and they were using a term that shows up over six thousand times in the old testament to refer to god or the lord and so it's not an accident in Luke 2 that when the angels announced Jesus' birth, they said, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And so they were saying that the Lord God himself was born. Uh, I'll bring this up. David and I were speaking on my way to church, and he was talking about how, you know, as I'm reading through this, you might be thinking, well, duh, yeah, sure. But obviously there's people still today, there's people historically in the church that argued over whether God was fully man, fully God. I mean, there's, there are literally denominations today that believe differently. Uh, so maybe Seventh-day or um, uh, Mormonism to some extent. I don't know about any Jehovah's Witness maybe perhaps, but they maybe believe different things about whether God, or sorry, Jesus was God fully or fully man or, or whatever. So this is an important topic. I think probably we've inherited sort of this belief and this is what we'd say we believe. Um, but historically, it has been a thing that people have argued over. One of the reasons being is, is that Jesus never has a verse where he says, I am God. You know, he doesn't like say that. Okay, obviously, as we go through these, you'll, you'll come to the conclusion, I hope, that, okay, this is what he believed. All right. Anyway, just as a, as a side note. All right, so then Jesus is also I am, which is a really loaded, very loaded term from the Old Testament. And so uh, when, when asked if he had seen Abraham, Jesus responded by saying, Before Abraham was, I am. This is in John 8, and this is in all caps. Uh, this was not a smart thing to say politically. Uh, and so this is the part in John where uh, all the religious leaders picked up stones to throw at him, which I want to be honest for a second. If someone showed up in our church today and said, I am or I am God, we might do the same thing. I think as, as good Christians, we might feel the same reaction. Okay, so you can't fault them too much. They didn't know what was going on. Um, but this is that same title that God claimed for himself in Exodus 3, where he says, I am who I am. Okay, and from the bush, you know, I am who I am. Uh, Jesus is also the Alpha and Omega, which obviously means the beginning and the end. It means he's been around before there was us, and he'll be here after there's us, okay? Um, in Revelation 22, Jesus calls himself the Alpha and the Omega. It's the same name that God gives himself in Revelation 1. And then Jesus is king, or Christ is king. And so we, uh, we learn in Isaiah that Jesus will be a king who reigns forever. And this is a role that only God could fill, right? 
Philippians 2, 9 through 11, Paul says that Jesus is worthy of our worship. I'm going to read it. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow on heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So if there's any confusion as to whether Jesus is God, just read Philippians 2. Hebrews 1, 6, let all God's angels worship him. We'll talk about this next week, about angels and you know, where do angels sit in the hierarchy well, Jesus is above them. Don't even show up next week. You've got it now. Um, and so again, if Jesus weren't fully God, he couldn't have borne the full penalty of sin in his death either. So he needed to be fully man for this to work. He also needed to be fully God to have the authority uh, to make this change. All right? And so discussion question. We're coming back around to a similar question as earlier. Jesus is fully God. What are some ways that this encourages you? So we were encouraged by the idea that Jesus is fully man. What about that he's fully God? it's in Colossians there's a verse about Jesus being our mediator I took it out of here just for, for time but I mean yeah that's that's a unique role obviously I mean you think about you know Old Testament was trying to get at what Jesus can do for us and you had your high priest that was sort of your mediator and that once a year could go in and, and mediate for the people and now we have Jesus that can do it all the time in any place because um, the temple is now inside of us so um, it's sort of like a much better version of something, you know. It's it's like the 2.0 of, of that mediation. And it, I was thinking about. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, good. I was thinking about this morning uh, during Eric's lesson. Spoiler alert! He asked us all to like put our anxieties onto God, and if we think about Jesus as being divine, it increases his size exponentially, so that he's big enough for all those people in the room put their anxieties on him and their burdens on him. Hmm. There's no way one person could carry the burdens of everyone on earth except if they were divine, if they were not of this world, if they were not created, they were um, they were God. And so thinking about him as God expands his size in my mind to be big enough to carry our carry the weight of our sin. That's great. Well, I guess I'll listen to that here in uh, you know forty minutes or so. Did you sing? Did you sing "Cast Your Burdens"? Did we sing it? Oh, Missed opportunity. Okay. Cast your burden. Very very odd church song. It's almost like a bossa nova of sorts. It's a very very weird. Weird. You know, we don't get a lot of that. It sounds. It sounds like what like old like you know stereotypical like Seven Eleven music sounds like. It's like that kind of. Yeah. No. Someone on here is losing. It's not technically Boston. Anyway, um, let's jump. Let's jump on. This is great. I'd, I'd love to spend. Discussion is always the best part. I know y'all are like, ah, oh, it's the best part. Why does he not do more of that? Um, next time we'll do more. Um, so, if you have fully man, fully God, you put them together, and for the only time in history, you get Jesus. Okay, so he was both at the same time. Um, perhaps this is the most amazing miracle of all the Bible. All right, it's up there with you know the resurrection. I mean, it's all kind of one and the same, I guess, but this, this is really it, all right? Uh, we were also on our phone conversation talking about Athanasius, 
Um, and there's a creed called the Athanasian Creed, probably written after his death, but we'll call it 5th or 6th century AD, but just like the Nicene Creed or similar to it, this was a statement of faith. Uh, David told me, sorry, I did not know that C.S. Lewis talks about that there was some sort of, uh, you know, gathering of church fathers where they were deciding, you know, was Jesus, was he fully man, fully God? And correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, Athanasius stood up and defended uh, the right side not the heretical side. And he has this quote, which I think is great, and I'm going to read it, is, he is, God from the, uh, sorry, he is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time. He is human from the essence of his mother, born in time, completely God, completely human, with a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father as regards divinity, less than the Father as regards humanity. Although he is God and human, yet Christ is not two, but one. He is one, however, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God's taking humanity to himself. He is one, certainly not by the bleeding of his essence, but by the unity of his person. For just as one human is both rational soul and flesh, so too the one Christ is both God and human. Ah, so it's like a great speech, you know. And it won it, won it out for Athanasius, and then the vote went his way. Um, so a few more minutes. So we come back to this question, this question of the gospel and what role Christ plays in it, and from that video, this idea of the snake and all these sorts of things, and this tension of the gospel, and this question is how does a holy God, a good and perfect judge, how does God deal with sinful man? Okay, and what it was our due punishment? Well, wages of sin is, is death. It's what we deserve. That's not what we get. We don't get that because God loves us. And through that love, he sent Jesus to the cross. So we know John 3.16. If you know any Bible verse, you probably know this one. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Um, this act satisfied the wrath of God. We don't talk, that's a, that's a minor key right there. We don't talk about the wrath of God. That's not a comfortable thing. We don't like to, I don't want to talk about it. Um, but in Romans 3.25, we have this. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, through the shedding of his blood, to be received by faith, he did this to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. So he did not let out his wrath on us. He waited, and he allowed Christ to atone for that. And so now, as forgiven sinners, we can be in the presence of holy God. So there goes the tension. So the tension is broken. We bring it up a lot, but tension is no more. Okay, thanks to Christ. Um, I love this image of this wrath, and I want to talk just a minute on this, is the, the cup of God's wrath it was thrust on Jesus in our place. And there's a, this allusion to a cup that I think is really important. Uh, in Isaiah and Revelation, there's this image of a cup that's filled with God's wrath, that's almost overflowing with God's wrath because of the things we've done as sinful people, whether it's as Babylon as an image, but just as sinful people. And so I imagine this just enormous goblet that you think of like a sinful king, like a worldly king that would take this goblet, sort of like in the movie uh, Gladiator, where the guy does his thumb down, and it's like, drink, you know, drink this goblet. This is your poison. This is what you have to drink, because you've been bad. Um, but this is that same cup in Matthew 26 that Jesus asks to not be taken, or he asks for it to be taken from him. He doesn't want the cup. He wants it to pass, okay? Uh, and he's in, in great sorrow in the garden. Uh, but the gospel is a picture of Jesus taking this cup and drinking it all the way down, drinking every last drop. I don't know if you're familiar with the Harry Potter movies. We've been watching back through them. But in the sixth one, The Half-Blood Prince, there's a scene, if you remember this, where they're having to get rid of these horcruxes, and Dumbledore has to drink this disgusting, like, dirty sink water. Okay, does anyone remember that? Um, it's called, I googled it, it's called The po Potion of Despair. If you knew that, kudos to you. Um, but why does he drink it? 
Well, he knows it's going to kill him, okay? And he drinks it so that Harry doesn't have to. Um, and so I, <laughs> I just wasn't planning to cry. I was watching with Charlie, and he started, like, kind of, like, tearing up. He was, like, sad about it, you know, because Dumbledore's, like, sick, and he's, like, not being himself. Whew. And, and I, I kind of recognized the image, but I, I didn't, you know, fully get it until I was preparing this. I was like, oh, man, that's great. All right, so a couple more things. <sighs> All right, so Jesus' resurrection, it demonstrates the power of God. Go watch that scene again and tell me it's not sad. It's really sad. <laughs> uh, but then he drinks it all and he's okay for a little bit. He's okay. It's not, it's not real. You're right. That's what, that's what I told Charlie. It's, it's, it's a work of fiction. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Dave, for keeping us grounded. <laughs> all right, so we know this. Jesus is victorious over de- uh, sin, death, and the grave in resurrection. He's crushed the snake. So this is the gospel the life, death, and resurrection of Christ in response to the tension between a holy God and sinful man. So that's, that's the gospel. Um, so in conclusion, who is Christ? Um, I'm gonna, these letters don't all line up, but I, I like these ideas. Is that When we look at these Old Testament prophecies, these prophecies of the Messiah, you recognize that Christ was inevitable in a sense. It, it had to happen. He had to come. Um, and then in light of this tension between holy God and sinful man, Christ was essential. He, he was necessary. He, he, had, he had to be there. Otherwise, uh, we're, we're not in a good spot. Um, and then as part of the Trinity, Christ is everlasting. He was around before. He's going to be around after. And so I think that is the beauty of Christ. I'm going to end with this quote from Wayne Grudem, the author of this book. In the person of Jesus, God physically entered into our world. An infinite God came to live in a finite world. The one who knew exactly how things were supposed to be came to a place where things obviously weren't in Jesus, God became sorry. In Jesus, God and man became one person, a person unlike anyone else the world has ever seen or ever will see. Jesus Christ was and forever will be fully God and fully man in one person, and that one person changed the course of history forever. Okay.